0: You know, there are different ways to say goodbye and there are different kinds of goodbyes that we say. Uh, for example, usually on uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, Jay Lynn drops me off at the school and I'll say, thank you for the ride, sweetheart. Uh, I'll see you a little bit later. And and there's the, the goodbye. She'll pick me up a couple of hours later when I'm finished teaching uh, my classes. It's a little bit uh, more difficult when you take a young adult who it was once a child, and you take them to college, and you leave them for the very first time. And uh, with all of the emotions that must be running through the minds and the heart of a parent, and, and even their young adult, young adult child, and you say goodbye to them in August, and you're not going to see them again until December, uh, that's a little bit more important of a goodbye, in fact, sometimes you might even plan your words out just a little bit so you can just say the right words for the moment. Maybe an even more important goodbye is the final goodbye. Maybe you one day will be saying goodbye to a mother or father as they are nearing death and maybe slipping in and out of consciousness. And you want to say goodbye to them and you want to say all of the things that you have on your heart. Or maybe as a senior adult, and you know your time is drawing near, and you want to say goodbye to your children and your grandchildren, you think about a little bit more clearly, a little bit more articulately, uh, what you want to say. What we're going to read this morning in these few verses at the end of 1 Thessalonians is Paul's goodbye. And what a goodbye it is. He knows just what to say and he knows just how to say it. And he crafts it in a way that's going to be helpful to that that young church. Remember, we've been studying this book for several months and these people that Paul is writing this letter to, they're real people. They're people that were suffering for their faith. I mean, really suffering for their faith. Uh, They had been raised worshiping the gods of the Greek pantheon, many of them. And Paul won them to faith in Christ, and their families felt like they were being insulted as their children or parents or siblings were putting their faith in a God they had never heard of before, the God of Israel, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was only one way to be made right with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. And many of them would have been deeply offended, and it would have caused quite a fracture in many a home. And so we've had a window into a first century church. We've been able to peek in through this letter into that church in Thessalonica. Young believers, enthusiastic and serious about their faith, but they've not been Christians very long. So Paul's been discipling them through this letter. And by God's grace, we have this letter available to disciple us as well. Well, I want to begin reading in verse 23, read through verse 28, and then bring up a few thoughts for us from these few verses in preparation for the Lord's Supper. Verse 23 says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of, the Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. And he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord uh, to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I want you to notice several things in these closing words. The first one is this, a prayer for holiness. Uh, Paul's already prayed for the church at Thessalonica. He, he did it in chapter 1. He did it again in chapter 3. And now we see him doing it again in chapter 5. It's in verses 23 and 24. Listen to the first part of verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Notice how he refers to God as the God of peace. God is the God of peace. There's various kinds of peace that God gives us. There's peace with God. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There the peace with God is peace that we receive in salvation. It's the peace of reconciliation. We are no longer enemies of God, but we are at peace with God. In fact, the point that he's making there is that God has forgiven us of all of our sins through the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and He has counted us righteous. Listen to the words again. Therefore, having been justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. To be justified is to be forgiven and to be counted righteous. To be justified means you don't have to toss and turn at night wondering about your eternity. You don't have to fear, have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I given enough money to the church? Have I done enough? No, you can't do enough to be reconciled to God. You can only be reconciled to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We receive the gift of reconciliation by faith. So when he says, Now, may the God of peace, he's first saying, you are at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Your salvation is secure. You have nothing to fear about the future. But there's also the peace of God. That's God's peace in the midst of a tumultuous world. And the world in which the Thessalonians lived was a tumultuous world. It was a difficult time to be a Christian in Thessalonica. And yet the God of peace was their God, the God that gives peace. God wants us to live in peace because he is the God of peace, even in the midst of a tumultuous age. But as God is not up in heaven, pacing back and forth, wringing his hands, wondering if a Democrat or Republican is going to be elected president, he sits on heaven's throne. He accomplishes all of his holy will among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. And he wants us to be at peace. doesn't mean that we, that we don't engage in the political, uh, in the political system that has been, we've been given the opportunity to engage in, but it doesn't determine our peace. We are at peace with God and we have the peace of God. And so he says, "Now may the God of peace Himself—that is, the one true and living God, the God that is on heaven's throne—may the God of peace Himself, that God and no other God, because there is no other God that exists. Now may the now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely." There is his prayer that they would be sanctified. The word "sanctified" means to be set apart for holiness. To be sanctified is to be used for God's purposes. It's to be made holy. He's praying that they would be holy. And notice he prays that they would be sanctified entirely, that their entire being, soul, body, spirit, their entire being would be sanctified. Their entire life would be sanctified. We might wonder a little bit, well, what does it mean to be sanctified? beyond just set aside for God's use and purposes. Well, think of it this way for just a moment. Out of all of the buildings in the ancient world, all of the cathedrals, all of the, all of the places where people would gather together to worship, all of the temples, the temple in Jerusalem was different than every other building, every other cathedral, every other temple in the ancient world because it was set apart and set aside for the worship of the one true and living God. The sacrifices that were offered there were offered to a real God, the God of heaven and earth. And, and think about the candelabra that would have been in the holy place in that temple. If you were to visit Jerusalem for one of the great Jewish festivals, even in Jesus' day, you could go through the marketplace and you could buy candelabras that were, that were crafted by artisans and that were replicas of the candelabras in the holy place. Uh, but they were just replicas. There was one candelabra that was crafted by artisans that would be in the holy place. That candelabra was set apart for the worship of God to remind the priest in the holy place that there's only one god, the one true and living god and that he's there to offer sacrifices for that god. And so to be set aside for God's purpose means that we do what we do, whatever that is, whatever our occupation, whatever our station and situation in life, we are set aside to do that for God's glory. So we are we are sanctified entirely. And it's a lifetime process. Uh, None of us are going to get there in this life. No matter where we are in our spiritual journey, there's still more to go. Uh, we, We never complete this journey of sanctification, of progressive sanctification, of holiness, until the day that we die. The day that we die, we are transformed into the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's praying that they would be ever more holy. They would be ever more set aside for the purposes of God. So that means when they go to the assembly line of the Ford plant, they go there by God's grace, for God's glory, to work as the kind of employee, as if God himself or the person of the Lord Jesus Christ were their supervisor. So there they are on the conveyor belt. There they are on the assembly line. They work as if Jesus were inspecting the work himself, because he is. Because our work matters to God. Because all of life matters to God. We have in our minds... There's the sacred and the secular. And so the sacred is what we do at church, and the secular is what we do with the rest of our life. But the Bible doesn't know anything of a separation between the secular and the sacred. All of life is sacred. That means what the worker in the Ford plant does is as equally important to God as me preaching a sermon today because God has placed that person there to bring him honor and glory to be a light in the midst of a fallen world to give glory to God by the way that he does his task it is incomprehensible to God that we would segment our lives out so he prays that they would be sanctified entirely, that their entire being would be progressively growing in in holiness. So, we see a prayer for holiness. The second thing I want you to notice is this, wise people who pray for others know they need the prayers of others. Now, that's a mouthful. Let me read it again, and you can see it on the screens. Wise people who pray for others know they need the prayers of others. Now, one assumption in that point is that we intercede on behalf of other people. And the more we intercede on behalf of other people, the more we come to the realization, I need people to pray for me. So Paul says in verse 25, brethren, pray for us. You would have thought, and I as well... If there was anybody in the ancient world that didn't need anybody praying for them, it would be the Apostle Paul, the great missionary theologian of the early church. No man made a greater impact in his day than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul may be the greatest man that has ever lived, save our Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. And yet he says to the church at Thessalonica, he says to very young believers, immature in their faith, Growing, but growing slowly, as most people do in their faith. Pray for me. Man, what a humble man. To say, I know you haven't known the Lord very long. You're just a child in the faith, but I really could use your prayers. I appreciate your prayers. Please pray for me. They already know that Paul's been praying for them. We saw his prayer in chapter 1. We saw his prayer in chapter 3. Now he says says in chapter 5, hey, by the way, pray for me. You know, we never get beyond the need of people praying for us. And so Paul reminds us of that here. But people who don't pray much for others aren't very cognizant of the fact of how much they need prayer themselves. But the point is very clear Uh, Paul wants these young converts to pray for him, which says to me, no matter how young you are in the Lord, you have the ear of God. You may not have been a Christian very long. You may be in the early stages of your spiritual life. You have as much access to God as I have. So I'm 62. I was saved at 19. You can do the numbers. That's a long time of being a Christian. I don't have any more access to God than you do. I don't have any more favor with God than you have. I I don't have any more forgiveness than you've experienced. We've both been justified by faith. We are both being saved in progressive sanctification. God listens to your prayers just as much as he listens to my prayers. So Paul says, pray for us. The third thing I want you to notice is we should never underestimate the need for Christian kindness. Never underestimate the need for Christian kindness. Greet the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, that's kind of a foreign idea to us, but in Paul's day, particularly in the Middle East, it was very common. In fact, it was rather natural for men to kiss men on the cheek and for ladies to kiss ladies on the the cheek. It was an expression of affection and commitment and, and, uh, and endearment. It's not appropriate in our day, and it doesn't mean the same thing in our day. In our day, it's like, uh, it's like an elbow bump or an air high five or whatever it may be, but the point that he's making is still very much true. We need to communicate with one another in kindness. We need to communicate kindness. There's enough cruelty in the world today... Christians need to be kind to one another. There's enough impatience in the world today. Christians need to exhibit patience toward one another. Uh, there's enough mean-spiritedness in the world today. Christians need to love one another. When Paul says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss, he says, greet all the brethren. Let us be kind to the people of God. Be forbearing with the people of God. Be gentle with the people of God. Be patient with the people of God as I as I mentioned. One of the one of the great blessings out of so many blessings of being of being your pastor is I, I get to visit with a lot of visitors. And you would think during COVID-19, people wouldn't be very interested in, in meeting with pastors of the churches that they visit. I, I found it to be just the opposite. Almost every single week, Jaylen and I are sitting in, in a living room in a uh, at a restaurant uh, at a coffee shop, visiting with people that visit this church. I say, listen, we'll, we'll visit with you any way you want to visit. We'll visit on Zoom. We'll visit from across the football field. We'll do it any way you want to. I want you to come to my house. All right, we'll come to your house. I want you to sit with me across the table at a coffee shop, all right? We'll sit across the table at a coffee shop. And almost inevitably, this is, gets to the point now, the blessing of being your pastor, they will say to me at some point in the conversation, you know, one thing we really like about the church, and I'm, I figure they're going to say the preaching, but usually it goes something like this, they'll say the people. And so, you know, even in, even in face mask and social distancing, it's such a friendly congregation. The people are genuinely warm and genuinely enthusiastic about meeting us. And it's difficult to meet people, isn't it, with face masks on and social distancing. Let me tell you, however you're doing it, and we want you to do it the right way to keep you, to keep you safe, safe and our guests safe, thank you very much for the way that you're doing it. So when he says greet one another with a holy kiss, you're doing a pretty good job of kissing right now. You're doing a pretty good job of of letting people know hey, we're glad you're here. Thank you for coming. If we can ever be of assistance to you, we we would be glad to glad to do it. But we need to make sure we do it with one another as well. That we greet one another with a holy kiss. That we express patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness to one another. That's what Paul means. Uh, The final thought that I want to direct your attention to is in the last two verses, the absolute necessity of God's Word and God's grace. Notice he says in verse 27, I adjure you by the Lord. So Paul is giving a command, an apostolic command. The command is an apostle speaking for, for the Lord Jesus himself. I adjure you by the Lord, by the authority of the Lord, to have this letter read to all the brethren. And so when he says, have the letter read to all the brethren, they didn't have the Bible like we have the Bible. Uh, Their Bible would have been our Old Testament, which is still a part of our Bible, but even then they didn't have their own copy of the Old Testament, their Bible. they would have to gather together and they would hear it read. It wasn't until the printing press that people were able to to readily begin to get in large, uh, large opportunities, significant opportunities to have their own Bible. And so what he's saying is, "Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God." That's the way that Jesus put it. Uh, make the reading or the listening of the Word of God very, very important to you. Uh, you know for, for me, I, I'm not able to to just read a book anymore the way that I used to used to be able to read, so I'll put my Bible up under a, a machine that puts it up on a large screen for me to be able to to read it, and, and often I'll listen to it being read, and I'll follow it along as it's as it's being read. Sometimes I'll just read it to myself uh, using my uh, magnification machine. But it doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a layman; you need to read the Word of God because God strengthens us and empowers us through the reading of His Word. And it's a privilege. It's a blessing. It's a gift from God to have it in written form. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So I've said that twice with great intentionality, because if you don't eat regularly, you become weak and anemic. And Jay Lynn says, I become grouchy. So whenever I'm grouchy, the first thing she asks is, have you had a snack? and I will say something like, we don't have any cookies. She says, we have grapes, and we have apples, and we have granola bars. And I said, we don't have any cookies. So, man doesn't live by bread alone, and obviously by cookies either, apparently. But but the point is, we need the regular intake of the Word of God. And then he closes it out. We not only need God's Word, we need God's grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's the second time that he's referred to Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ in these final lines. Look in verse 23 at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace is God's unmerited favor. The word grace and the word joy in the language in which Paul wrote are very close. Listen, listen to these two words, charis kara, charis kara. Karas Kara. Joy and grace are intricately related. One Bible commentator says grace is best defined as that which causes joy. God's unmerited favor fills us with God's joy. There is different kinds of grace, they're saving grace, and they're sustaining grace. The Thessalonians have experienced saving grace. The Thessalonians need sustaining grace. So he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's a prayer for them. God's grace be with you. And notice the name, Lord Jesus Christ. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus is divine. To say that Jesus is Christ is to say that He's Messiah. So he's the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, but he's more than any Messiah they had anticipated because he's the divine Messiah. He's God-Messiah. But notice his human name, Jesus. He's a Galilean carpenter that became an itinerant preacher who died on a cross bearing in his body our sins. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if there's any name more beautiful to me than the name of Jesus. Listen, the name Jay Lynn is a very beautiful name to me. But there's no name more beautiful than the name of Jesus. When life is hard, just say the name. When life is wonderful, just say the name. Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. Well, he says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's what we're about to experience when we take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Most of you have heard me explain what that means many times, but let me do it again. What do do I mean when I say the Lord's Supper is a means of grace? I mean it's more than just a reminder of what Jesus did for us. It is an infusion of spiritual strength and vitality. You say, Pastor, how so? Well, if man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that is when we don't read our Bible, we grow spiritually weak, just like when we don't eat food, we grow physically weak, but when we regularly read our Bible, we are strengthened because the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to work in our lives. It's a means of grace. Prayer is a means of grace. When I, when I get on my knees and I pray to God and I am engaging God in private prayer, it's a means by which I'm strengthened merely by being in the presence of my heavenly Father. When we gather together for congregational worship, we may be weak and anemic, but we begin to sing, and we begin to hear the voices. And congregationally, we inf- we are u- the Spirit of God uses each of us with those who are around us as they hear us to strengthen them. Well, the same is true with the Lord's Supper. It's not just a good reminder of what Jesus did, it is that. But the Spirit of God uses it to strengthen us spiritually when we think about what we are commemorating. Uh, Take this little cracker in your hand. Go ahead and open that up for me. So what are we thinking about? We're thinking about the fact that Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. If Jesus Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, think how much now He loves you, that you are a part of His family, that you've been adopted into the family of God, that He is your Savior and Lord. If He died for us while we were yet sinners, how much more will He keep us now that we belong to Him? Think about that as you eat this little cracker. Father, thank you for the reminder that you love us, and that as we, as we break that cracker between our teeth, we know that our Lord was bruised and battered in our place, and it is a reminder of his love for us, in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll take the cup, Uh, the cup again is just a reminder that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Uh, The cup is just a little cup of juice, but it represents the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that you can do. You can't do anything that would cause God to love you more if you are in His family. There's absolutely nothing you can do that will cause him to love you any less if you are a part of his family. That is, the blood of Jesus is a reminder that God's love for us is unconditional. And his love doesn't have his ups and downs, its ebbs and flows. His love is a full, complete, passionate love Would you take and drink. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that as we are reminded about what you did, we are very conscious of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are very conscious of the fact that when Paul prayed that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with them, he was praying one of the most important prayers that anyone could ever pray for another human being or for a congregation of people. And Father, we know that grace, we've experienced that grace, and we've been reminded of that grace in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now, Lord, strengthen us for our good and ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.